uh, as we open up God's Word as well. And speaking of God's Word, would you open up your Bibles to Judges 5? Yes, we are preaching from Judges in Tucson. We're actually about, we're doing about a 20-sermon series uh, in Judges, and um, it, it's been wonderful. If you're not that familiar with Judges, um, boy, it, it's a dark <laughs> book that is filled with despair. Uh, the, 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 the tagline for Judges is, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. How relevant is that to us today? Um, and yet, while that might be the tagline, the purpose, the purpose of Judges is to reveal a faithful God who hates sin and yet is merciful to sinners and faithful to save them, to transform them, and to keep them. And so the book of Judges, if you've never spent any time, I encourage you to read it, because it, if you understand it in the greater, if you understand it in the greater picture of redemptive history, it is a flashing neon arrow that points us not to another imperfect judge, but to the one who came and stood in our stead because, well, because we, like those in Judges, we tend to do just as we want to do and live. So really, it's the, ju- it, it, it's the gospel according to Judges. Read it through that lens, if you will. Now, we're doing uh, chapter 5 today, and it's the story of Deborah and Barak. Uh, and really, chapter 4 and chapter 5, they, they are about one event. In chapter 4, there is this battle that God faithfully wins for his people. You might say that chapter 4 is the details of the battle. It's the prose, if you will. And chapter 5 is the poetry set to music. Chapter 5 is a song. Uh, for you sports fans, chapter 4 is the play-by-play. Chapter 5 is the color commentary. Uh, it's same event, different perspective, different genre, meant to help us just see the many facets of God's greatness and glory and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, So you do need a little bit, it's helpful in today's sermon to have a little bit of chapter 4 under your belt. Um, So if you're unfamiliar with what's happening here, Deborah and Barak, I I would say they're kind of partners as judges. Deborah was a prophetess. Uh, she, the, the chapter 4 says she was judging Israel at the time, but a little different than the other judges. She was mediating God's word. She would sit under a tree, and God's people would come to her, and she would mediate God's word to them. She would help bring the word of God to bear on their situation and their life. And then you have Barak, who, well, he was a military man. He's more of your typical judge, military going out to battle to save God's to save God's people. In chapter 4, in their story, they join together. Deborah goes to Brock and says, Brock, get up. The Lord is going to deliver Israel from the hands of Jabin, who was the Canaanite king at the time. And so Brock was a little bit hesitant. Uh, She said, listen, get up and go into battle. The Lord will deliver them. But 
he said, well, okay, I'm only going if you go, because he knew what he was getting himself into. He knew that this battle would be a suicide mission, as we'll see uh, later on. So, but ultimately, Barak listened. And in fact, he's in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith for his obedience and his willing participation in the purposes of God. But you know, all we hear about the battle is that every man was, was dead, except Sisera, who was the, the general of Jabin's Canaanite army. He actually fled on foot in the battle, and he went to a man named Heber's camp, where he thought he would be safe because he was an ally. He didn't find Heber, but he found Heber's wife, Jael, in one of the most disturbing events in Judges, maybe in, entire, in all of Scripture, uh, Jael lends herself to the purposes of God, even though she was an ally of the enemy, and she drove a tent peg through his temple and killed him. Interesting. God used Deborah and Barak, but he used, well, he used a Gentile to finish the job. And now what we have in Judges chapter 5 is a celebration of that happening, a celebration of that event. And so I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Judges 5. We're just going to read verses 1 through 9. We're going to duck in and out. We're not going through this verse by verse. We're, we're approaching it through themes. But if you would look at verse 1, let's read it together. Like I said, we're going to read through verse 9. Judges 5, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, the war was in the gates. When shield or spear to be seen... Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Lord, this is your word. Cause it to bear fruit in our hearts that we might live for your glory and magnify your greatness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said earlier, Judges is a song. It's a song about God's people, God's power, and God's purposes. And this song, though 3,000 years ago it was sung, this song is ours because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, our goal, like I said, is not to touch on every part, but the theme but, but as we address some themes, some main themes that surface from this song, it should lead us to this ultimate conclusion this morning. We magnify Christ 
as we celebrate his grace in one another and trust his faithfulness in our own lives. We magnify Christ. You magnify the Lord as you celebrate his grace in one another and you trust his faithfulness in your own life. The song gets us there three ways. First, praise the Lord for this people. That's what we see. That's what we see this song doing. They praise the Lord for his people. They praise the Lord for God's power. And ultimately, they praise the Lord for his purposes. That is, his salvation that has come to them on this day. So let's look at that first point. Praise the Lord for his people. This song, this song is unmistakably upward. There's no denying that. Notice verse 3. It says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. Just as we did this morning. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. I love this picture. It's a picture of God's people doing what they were created to do. We just did it together. God's people singing to God. And you know this, but from Exodus to Revelation, that's what we find God's people doing. That's what we will be joining the angels in heaven to do, singing God's praises. Singing God's praises is a mark of belonging to God. It's why we sang this morning, Christ saved you and the Holy Spirit lives in you, so you sing. So you sing. Now, in this passage, something that might surprise us in, in singing God's praises is that Deborah and Barak's song celebrated not only their Lord, but it celebrated his people. Notice in verse 2 how this song begins. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. You notice that? If you keep looking down in verse 13, then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From, Eph from Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley following you. Benjamin with your kinsmen and from Mekir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, who's those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Later on, verse, verse 18, the, the, song, the song celebrates Naphtali. And so what you have here is these verses, beginning with verse 2, really the very beginning of this song, there, there is this roll call. There is this roll call set to music of the tribes that willingly participated, i.e. chapter 4, in the purposes of God. Six tribes that united together. They recruited soldiers and they went out into the battlefield to participate in what God was doing. They allowed their lives to be used in the hands of God for His purposes. Even at great risk, even at great peril, even in the midst of unknown. And for that, Deborah and Barak celebrate them by praising God for them. Now, now if you keep reading in the story, 
Some tribes chose to be spectators in God's purposes here. They stayed home, and they watched the battle from afar, whatever their reasons, that they did not participate. And in verses 15 through 17, they too are named, they are rebuked, they are challenged for being spectators instead of participants in God's purposes. But, but what's clear in this song, and, and what I want you to see most of all, is that Deborah and Barak are overflowing with affection and thanksgiving for God's people and their willing participation in God's purposes. It's the way the song begins, and I think that's very interesting. In a song that celebrates God's salvation for his people, I would have thought it would have began with God in verse 3. But instead, it begins with his people in verse 2. Now, don't, don't, don't take that the wrong way. That doesn't mean God's people are at the center of the celebration. In fact, you probably noticed this, but the text guards us actually against that conclusion. Notice at the end of verse 2 again. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willing. And then look at that phrase, bless the Lord. We see that again, that phrase bookends the first nine verses. At the end of verse 9, it ends with bless the Lord. Uh, typically when we bless someone, that, what are we doing? Well, we're enriching them, aren't we? We are, we, we are in somehow advancing their well-being when we bless someone. Well, we can't enrich God. I think you know that. <laughs> we can't advance His well-being. That's not what's happening here. Because God doesn't need our enrichment. God is infinitely sufficient. He is infinitely glorious in and of himself. He doesn't need any of us to do anything ultimately. He is pleased to invite us. He is pleased to use us. And so this idea of bless the Lord, you know this, but, but I don't want us to look at this song without bringing attention to this. It means to magnify the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God. And that's important because what it does in a song that begins with God's people, recognizing them and what they did, well, it, it's qualified. It's qualified with the phrase that ultimately says, but God is the source of their willingness. God is the source of their faithfulness. God is the source of their courage to be used by him. In other words, used here in verse 2, bless the Lord deflects the glory of God from God's people to God himself. And that should mean something to us. We shouldn't read over that. 1 Corinthians 10 says that Deborah and Barak's song, not specifically, but, but, but the message there says that their song has been written down for your example. 
for my example to learn from. And so what we see here in this song, right at the beginning, there is a unique way that this song sung 3,000 years ago shapes how we think about and how we engage with one another. It is good before God to celebrate one another by recognizing his evidences of power and grace in each other. I would just humbly submit to you that, that I, don't, I don't believe there's a more significant way that I can love you than reminding you in intentional and specific ways of the abundance of God's grace in your life because of Jesus, because he's at work in you, because his spirit lives in you, because he's using you, because he loves to use you in his purposes. You matter in the purposes of God. Not because you're great, but because God's ways are great. And in his infinite wisdom before the foundations of the world, he said, I'm not just going to make everything right. I'm going to use my people. That's why Romans says, who will, who will believe if no one goes? He loves to use his people. And so how important it is for us to grow and and helping one another recognize and celebrating the goodness of God in one another. And the implication, I think, is tremendous because it's this. If God loves to magnify his goodness and his greatness through the efforts of his people, and that's what we see here, then when we refuse to acknowledge and celebrate God's grace in one another, we refuse to acknowledge and celebrate God in a way that he desires. And remember, bless the Lord is there so that we don't become one another centered. Bless the Lord is there so that we do not make this about us or one another, but ultimately God. Um, anybody ever heard the name Billy Race? Is that familiar? He's our senior pastor in our church in Midland, Texas. Man, he's a good guy. Uh, he just, the love of Christ just pours forth from that man. He's somebody you want to know. He came and did a marriage seminar one, one, one year at our church. And he, 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 he illustrated, he illustrated uh, seeing the grace of God in one another with a pair of glasses. He had taken, he'd, he'd taken two foam cutout crosses, and, and he had stuck them to one on each lens. And I don't, wear, I don't really wear glasses unless I'm reading, but uh, when I put those on, what I notice is it kind of forms one cross. <laughs> but you know what the effect was? Everywhere I looked, <laughs> the cross was right here. When I looked at Donna, I saw that cross. When I looked at Ron, I saw that cross. And his point was that that is, that is God's desire for, for how he wants us to live, to see everything, especially one another, through the lens of 
redemption through the lens of the cross, through the lens of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and his promises for his people. And in a, in a, in a unique way, that, that's what we can walk away from this song with. How do we, how do I, am I growing in recognizing Christ in those around me? Celebrating God's grace and power, not only at some point to save them, but right now sanctifying them and empowering them for what he has called them to. Um, Listen, it's January 28th, so I'm going to make what I think is a safe assumption You've already broken any New Year's resolutions that you've made, if you're into that kind of thing. So can I just offer you a fresh start? Um, Make it a goal in 2024 to excel at sharing Christ-centered gratitude and encouragement with every person that serves you in this church. I'm not suggesting that you write a song about your pastors, okay, or the greeters, or the people making your coffee. We'll leave the song writing to Deborah and Barack, but we can excel in the example that they are to us. They didn't just skip over God's people and go right to God. They celebrated God's people as an expression of celebrating God himself. So how can you grow in loving those in your church? By praising God for them, both privately and publicly. I love what you guys did this morning. Just recognizing the, 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 the power and the grace at work. I, I forgot your name. I'm sorry. Lisa. Lisa. As she has given herself away and served the next gen. They're not just kids. It's the next generation of your church. Man, I, I, I love that as a congregation you guys celebrated that. And that you weren't afraid to, to acknowledge that. Because listen, some people are. Some people would say, whoa, pastor, that's idolatry. <laughs> no, I, go read Paul. Paul was the master at this. So that's what we see in this song. What we see first, first off is this song, as they celebrated and praised God, they celebrated and praised him for his people and their participation. And then we see that they praised the Lord for his power. They praised him for his power. This situ- and, I, and I want to take you back a little bit to the situation so you can feel the weight of how amazing, so you can feel the, how amazing how amazingly God worked on their behalf. The situation for God's people in chapter 4, in this 20-year period that it covers, uh, is aptly described in in chapter 4, verse 3. Look there with me. Verse 3 of chapter 4. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. That is Sisera. That's Jabin's Uh, his general, he had 900 chariots of iron. And then look what it says. And he oppressed the people of Israel. Now, if you read the book of Judges, you see that. God's people are being oppressed. But here, here he says, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly (laughs) for 20 years. He didn't just oppress them. 
the oppression was, it was a cruel form of oppression for 20 years. Now, in verses 6 through 8 in, in chapter 5, we get an idea of what that must have been like under the cruel oppression of the Canaanites. Look at verse 6 of our song. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, Jael is the one who drove the tent peg through Sisera's skull. The highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. Don't just pass over that. That, that, that tells us something. It, it was dangerous in Israel. Uh, the first time that, that we ever crossed the border and we went into Mexico, people said, hey, okay, so listen, have you ever done that? No. Okay, well, here's what you need to do. Stay on the main highway and, you know, keep a low uh, key. Uh, don't, don't, don't make a big deal. Uh, go the speed limit. Um, you know, it can be dangerous. Well, we've been down there. It was fine. <laughs> but you'll see on the news, you'll see on the news in the Middle East, maybe Afghanistan, you get out of those villages, it can be dangerous traveling. Some scholars believe that uh, um, what was happening was that the Canaanites were, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were sabotaging people. They were pillaging them, the Israelites, as they traveled. But the point here is that, the Canaan, that it was dangerous for Israel to travel even in their own country. The Canaanites were everywhere. They, 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 Israel didn't root them out like they were supposed to. And now they're everywhere. They are increasingly controlling everything. If you were an Israelite, like verse 6 says, you couldn't travel without risking your life. So guess what? You didn't. You stayed in your village. If you dared to venture out, like verse 6 says, you used the byways. In other words, you went on the back roads hoping that they wouldn't see you there. Hoping that you could get from point A to point B without encountering the enemy. And of course, this meant that trade and commerce for the Israelites were virtually ceased. In other words, God's people were in a bad way. In verse 8, in verse 8, it says that Israel was without shield or spear. Not literally, but meaning their, their military was woefully unequipped. And then finally in verse 9, we, we see Israel's desperation laid bare. Look what it says in verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offer them willingly among the people. My heart goes out. In other words, oh, those who are going to war, God bless you. This is not people are going to die. Her heart broke. When she considered how desperate this could state and situation God's people were, were under. That's the impossible situation that God worked. And notice how they describe his work. Verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom... The earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Pay attention to that. Verse 5, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Now look down at verse 21. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. 
Kishon was a, was a river, main river. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, swept them away. In chapter 4, in chapter 4, I said this earlier, but all we're told about this great battle is that Barak defeated Sisera's army of iron chariots, and Jael finished the job by killing, by killing Sisera in her tent. When I preached out, I told my church, you have to come back next week if you find out how that war was actually won. How in the world did Israel defeat such a a mighty army, and 900 chariots is kind of a drumbeat in chapter 4. We keep being reminded, 900 chariots, guys, 900 chariots. In other words, this is an impossible mission. But here in chapter 5, verse 4 and 21, it tells us how. God providentially commands the weather. God brings the storm. He brings the storm. Now listen, here's, here, there are a few, there's a bit of irony here. This battle was fought during the dry season. Okay? It was fought, and that's what led Sisera to, to believe, a very skilled Canaanite general, to believe his 900 chariots would annihilate Israel's army. If you go back and read in chapter 4, verse 6, what you learn is that God told Barak, take your army to Mount Tabor. In other words, go... On, they were up on Mount Tabor. Well, Mount Tabor was shaped like an upside-down bowl. And what that meant, Sisera knew, okay, we're going to surround that mountain. And at some point in time, they're going to have to come down. And when they do, it will be a slaughter. It's almost like, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the, the battles that, you know, the... Remember that? I forget the name of that movie, but you remember the giant elephants swinging there? You remember that? And... and, and and the good guys were all on foot. And those guys just, those elephants cut through them like butter. Well, that's what would have happened with these 900 chariots. They would have cut through these, the foot soldiers of Israel like butter. Sisera knows this. He says, guys, this is going to be easy. This is a suicide mission that they are on. But God had other plans. He sends a tremendous rainstorm that turned the Kaishan River into a raging torrent and the battlefield into a swamp. And this explains how Israel won a battle that they should have never won. The mighty chariots, that technological advantage, and it was a tremendous advantage on the battlefield, it was, it, it was gone. It was gone. God commanded the weather to weaken the enemy and ensure victory for his people. Listen, we like to explain these kind of things in natural terms, don't we? Well, okay, pastor. It's probably a freak store. Or they were just at the right place at the right time. Or maybe a stroke of luck or a coincidence. I think we're all prone to this in some way, and I think the reason is we are naturally averse to the idea of the supernatural, <laughs> right? We're naturally averse to that. But, but that denies the very nature of the Christian life. The Christian life is supernatural. There is nothing natural about our God, right? 
I mean, we are, we are born of the Spirit, John 3, 8. We are empowered by the Spirit for life in Christ, Ephesians 3, 16. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but evil forces, Ephesians 6, 12. The Christian life is undeniably supernatural. And I would just, without knowing you, I would just humbly submit to you that, that, that if you struggle with that reality, you will find yourself struggling to thrive as you should spiritually. Because the Christian life, this, this institution, the church, the local church, it is supernatural. Being led along and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The supernatural power of God working through ordinary natural human beings like you and I. God did this for Deborah and Barak and his people. He commanded the rain and the river just as he told Job he could to eliminate Sisera's advantage. Here's another piece of irony. Baal, the god of Canaan, was the god of the storms. He's nowhere to be found here. <laughs> no, the God of the storm is the one true and living God who alone is omnipotent to command the weather, even to be faithful to protecting his people. Now, I, there's a picture here of all of this that I don't want you to miss. Uh, this song paints a powerful picture of God working on behalf of his people. Go back to verse 4. It says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped. But, but then look at verse 5. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even before the Lord, the God of Israel. If you're familiar with the geography here, this battle took place up in the area of Hazor. It was north of the Sea of Galilee, okay? That's where chapter 4 um, occurred. Mount, Mount, uh, uh, in, in verse 4, Seir was a mountainous region far south. It was down below the Dead Sea. And it was the area, the mountainous region where Mount Sinai was. And so the, don't miss the imagery here. That there, There's awesome imagery that comes to us through the language of the text. The titles in verse 5, the one from Sinai and the God of Israel. Yes, that's Yahweh, Israel's covenant-keeping God. And the picture is here that he marches up. We know that God is omnipresent, so we got that. But the imagery here is that he is marching up from Sinai. He is marching up from, Mount, from, from the Sierra region to fight for his people. The one who delivered them from Pharaoh and his mighty chariots. Remember? Their backs weren't to a mountain then. They were to, the, they were to a sea. And they were in trouble. It was an impossible situation. That same God now marches up to do the impossible again. To deliver his people from Sisera and his 900 chariots. Just... Just as he had promised in chapter 4 when Deborah said to Barak, she mediated his word and said, Barak, get up and go 
into battle for the Lord, for he's delivered them into your hands. An impossible situation that God faithfully and powerfully was victorious for his people. Listen, did you find yourself today in an impossible situation? Doctor can't tell you what's wrong with you. A dear relationship seems beyond reconciliation and restoration. Perhaps a family member or friend just remains unresponsive to the gospel. A besetting sin owns you. Man, I I did it again. Loneliness is destroying you. Life is just too big for you. It's overwhelming. Or, when the prophetic word came this morning, you said, that's me. That's me. Don't give up on God. This God who did the impossible. And his people were in an impossible situation. Don't give up on him. There are no shadows with God. He does not ebb and flow like the sea. He does not change. And the same God who did this for Deborah and Barak is at work in your life. Don't Give up on God. Hold tightly to Jesus, knowing he is holding tightly, tighter to you. My kids, they grew up swimming, and each one of them had those moments when we first got them into the pool. You know, start at the steps, water's going up their backs, and with each step into the deeper water, those little hands gripped my shoulders and my back tighter and tighter. I would have red marks of little fingerprints on my shoulders. What they didn't, they were, they were, they were clinging tightly. But you know who's clinging more tightly? Me. Their father. And I would not let them go. I would not let them go. God will not let you go. He will not. No matter how impossible your situation seems, He will not let you go. Listen, why God allows you to be where you're at today, that's another sermon. Just know this. He has purpose. 
and it's glorious. It's being worked out for your good. So don't give up on him. Cling tightly. Finally, praise the Lord for his purposes. Look at verse 31. So may all, this is how the song ends. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as, be like the sun as, he ri- as he rises in his might. The imagery of God in verse 4 and 5. Remember that imagery of God going up from Mount Sinai to fight for his people. It's in the backdrop of verse 31. It's in the backdrop. It informs us because that day is a reminder. That day is a day that points forward to a day that verse 31 alludes to. That day when God will fully and finally All will be put under his feet. He will destroy Satan and his enemies once and for all. That day is coming. And that day was inaugurated. The day when God rose in might by coming not up, but coming down to us. Condescending to us. By sending not another imperfect judge who ultimately is unable to do the job of delivering God's people, but by sending his perfect son who came to us willingly, who participated in God's plan of salvation willingly and with the joy that was set before him to deliver us from Satan and sin and its counterpart, death, and ultimately winning our salvation at the cost of his very life. And he did that when you were in the most impossible of situations. You were lost in your sin. The Bible actually says you were dead in your sin, meaning you had no ability and you had no desire to ever, to ever be right with God. Romans, Romans 5 says that while we were still weak, Romans 5, 6 And while we were still enemies, Romans 5.10, in other words, in this story, yes, we are the weak Israelites and we are are the, the Canaanite enemies. We're both. We are both. And it's when we were both, at just the right time, Christ came down. The God who went up sent his son down from the throne of God to a hill called Calvary where he endured the storm of storms. He endured the holy wrath of God on account of our sin, taking it all on his shoulders. 1 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he, what? He who knew no sin became sin. In other words, he took our sin on his shoulders and absorbed our punishment, bleeding and dying for our forgiveness so that we could live victoriously for him. And at just the right time, verse 31 points us to that day where at just the right time, he will come back. And we will fully and finally be saved. Revelation 21. No more sin. No more suffering. No more tears. And most importantly, Jesus will be there face-to-face in his presence. Put those glasses on this week. And as, you, as the worship team comes up, let me finish with this. Listen, as Christians, this song 
This song is our song. It's our song to sing. It's the gospel song. It's the only song we have to sing. And we sing it together. And we sing it to one another in love and unity and gratitude and eager expectation for the day that the Lord and Savior will appear and give us full and final heavenly rest, that which you cannot find in the book of Judges. But one day it will be ours and the rest will never, ever end. By the way, that's what Bridge is about, isn't it? (laughs) Introducing people to this song. To this song. Barry Webb in his commentary ends this chapter like this. He says, so choose to sing. (laughs) Sing this kind of song. It glorifies God and edifies those with whom you sing it. And if Israel had reason to praise God for delivering them, how much more do we who are the beneficiaries of the great victory God has won for us in Christ Jesus? And if that doesn't start us to singing, what will? So I would submit the most appropriate way to end today is to stand and sing this song to our Lord and Savior who's won the victory for us. Let's stand.